everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I am your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science, conservation and storytelling to talk all about sharks and the oceans. Today's episode was filmed at Wild Screen Film Festival in Bristol, for which Save Our Seas were a primary sponsor, so we all got to go two months ago, which was really awesome. It is an event that aims to bring together professionals in natural history, filmmaking and storytelling from all across the world. And as a scientist, it's always cool to see this side of conservation and be exposed to creative people who are giving wildlife a voice and telling stories about the issues faced by our natural world. They are essentially telling stories about the science that we are producing. And this is such an important part of the jigsaw because without storytelling, we aren't going to get the public on board with protecting nature. And I am so excited because my guests today are not only incredible filmmakers at the very top of their game with so many insane stories to tell, but they have also worked on the biggest landmark natural history series of the last 10 years, including Blue Planet 2 and more recently Frozen Planet 2. I would argue that these programs have been instrumental in changing public perception and attitudes towards what's happening on our oceans. I remember when Blue Planet 2 aired for the first time and all of a sudden, Everyone was talking about microplastics and human impact on our oceans. And as a marine scientist, that was just so incredible to see. And a lot of what we're talking about today is how to communicate big, potentially quite scary and very complex environmental issues like climate change and the biodiversity crisis in a way that engages and empowers people rather than cause them to panic and switch off the TV. And my guests today are absolute experts in that topic. They are producers and filmmakers Yolan Bosiger and Rachel Butler-Scott. Both of these women have seriously impressive career histories and have spent so many hours underwater filming wildlife. I think Rachel spent 600 hours underwater (laughs) during the filming of Blue Planet 2. And they have dived and worked in some of the coldest and most remote places on Earth. They both started out at university, Yolly studying a combined degree in marine biology and law at James Cook University in Australia, and Rachel a BSc in biological sciences from Oxford. In 2012, Yolly was awarded the prestigious Rolex Scholarship, which allowed her to dive all over the world and gain experience collecting data in the field. She also worked as a polar dive guide, which sounds pretty darn cool, if you'll excuse the pun. And then she started work as a researcher for the BBC, working on shows like Blue Planet, and has worked her way up to becoming assistant producer. Yolly worked on the episode Frozen South for the Frozen Planet 2 series and was part of the team responsible for the incredible Weddell Seal sequence where she had to dive under sea ice using a rebreather, which is the first time that that equipment has ever been used in that part of the world. Rachel started her career with the BBC in 2010, making tea and taking on the researcher role for Great Barrier Reef. She then went on to work as assistant producer on Blue Planet before becoming producer director on Frozen Planet 2. Rachel produced the episode Frozen Ocean, which Yolly also worked on, where they had to camp on sea ice and spend a lot of time on the ocean. She is now a senior producer for the Netflix production Oceans. To be completely honest, I think my jaw was on the floor for most of this episode, just hearing about some of their incredible tales from the field. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to work in Arctic and Antarctic conditions, what goes into the filmmaking process for a big blue chip natural history series like Frozen Planet 2, and how to pick the right stories for these series. I was so lucky to be able to chat to Yolly and Rachel for the best part of an hour and hear all about their diving adventures and experiences in the industry. Please, please do go and watch Frozen Planet 2. You can find it on BBC iPlayer. It really is a masterclass in climate change and natural history storytelling. I laughed, I cried, I went through a whole range of emotions while watching it. 
and I'm sure you will as well. And you can see the fantastic work that Yoli and Rachel and their teams put into the whole series. It really, really is something special to watch. And because it is Wild Screen Film Festival, we do have some questions that relate to advice in the industry. So if you're looking to break into the natural history filmmaking space or you're trying to move from being a researcher into a producer role, then Yoli and Rachel do have some really good advice for you. So make sure you listen out for that. Okay, grab all of your thermal gear because where we're going, it's really cold, a toasty beverage, and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Yoli and Rachel, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much. We're so lucky to have you both because I know you're extremely busy bees and we're just at the end of Wild Screen. It was it was fun, but we're extremely lucky to have you and I very much appreciate you guys taking the time to chat to us. I cannot wait to talk to you all things underwater filmmaking, Frozen Planet, Blue Planet, everything. I'm very, very excited. But we are going to start the podcast with a question that we ask every single guest. What is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So Yoli, I will come to you first on that one. Oh, thank you very much, Isla. Um, I think my most memorable moment has actually been quite recently. Uh, we were in the middle of the ocean, 10 kilometers from the nearest land, and I had approximately 50 false killer whales mm. coming around me with thousands of bottlenose dolphins and loads of sharks. And yeah, they're just so intelligent. They come right up to you, they look at you, and you just think they're thinking like, what are you doing in the water? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was a really privileged moment. That sounds insane. That sounds incredible. Were you filming at the same time? No, so I was actually the safety diver to the cameraman who was in the water. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was just something that I've not, done so much before I haven't done so much open water diving so that was really special yeah yeah because one thing that I don't understand is how you guys can stay working and concentrate when stuff like that happens like whenever I watch the big blue chip series I always think about the people behind the camera and I'm like how did you keep your cool because I I definitely wouldn't <laughs> I definitely don't keep my cool I find it so I have to sit on my hands and I just get so giddy and then when it's featured in some of the behind the scenes moments I think oh my gosh I'm such an idiot most of my friends they will not I'd be exactly the same if I was there and uh-huh. I think if I ever lose that passion and that giddiness for the natural world then maybe I should be looking for a different job yeah and how about you? What was your most memorable experience? It's the hardest question. And and I think I think we're constantly kind of, because we're so excited and passionate about the oceans, we're constantly kind of finding and seeing better and better and better things. Um, but I think probably the most surprising and exciting moment was my first shoot for Frozen Planet 2, mm-hmm. where we were on this big ice-strengthened vessel. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, on the water. Mm-hmm. But to wake up one morning and look at your porthole and the surface of the ocean has frozen into ice. That is, and then as you hit the ice, it hits the side of the hull of the boat. You think, ah, my gosh, are we going to be on the Titanic? But that that for me was extraordinary. And then we were out there filming hooded seals who (laughs) blow up this this part of their nose into this massive red balloon. And harp seals who, harp seal babies are just the cutest animals on earth. Uh-huh. So I think that for me is a more recent one, but it, it was so special just waking up and being in this frozen Disneyland. Yeah, because of course you both have spent a lot of time in that in that place, and not many people get to spend time, you know, both at, you know both extremes, so the Arctic and the Antarctic. And I would absolutely love to wake up to just like that landscape it was really special yeah Yoli and I've been very privileged to be at BBC for quite quite a while now and spend hundreds of hours on and under the water so mm-hmm. so that's a mean question for us <laughs> asking no. the, the favorite experience I'm so sorry but like we we asked this to like scientists everybody filmmakers and it's really interesting to hear what everybody's 
what everyone's memorable experience is. And we also have a question at the end, which I won't tell you what it is that we ask everyone, which is very serious. Um, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, but you're obviously, as you said, you're extremely passionate about the underwater world, about the ocean. And I'm really interested to know sort of where did that begin? Where did it begin for you, Yoli? Well, I was born on uh, a year into my parents' seven-year sailing circumnavigation around the world. So it wasn't really much of an option for me, I don't think. <laughs> you literally fall into it. Yeah. So, yeah, I was sort of surrounded by the ocean from a very, very young age. And, yeah, it's just always been, you know, a really important part of my life. And some of my earliest memories are of the ocean. And, yeah, I just, I kind of need to be surrounded by it, actually, if I'm not if I don't get to go into the water for, mm. you know, a month or so, I really notice. That well, we know start... she gets twitchy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> She's hard to put down. Yeah. <laughs> Not a very nice person after that. <laughs> but that's very much understood. I, I completely understand how you feel. Like when I first came to Bristol this week, um, I didn't know what to do with myself because I live by the sea. And I was like, where is it? I can't see it anymore. But that's, that's, Insane. So your parents were, what were they doing? They were circumnavigating. Yeah, so they set off from Cairns in Australia mm-hmm. and it was their plan to do, to sail around the world. They wanted to travel wow. and sailing was one of the sort of the cheapest ways at the time that they could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then I was born a year in. Mm-hmm. And so I spent six years of my childhood on a boat Um yeah. Did they make it all the way around? Yes, <laughs> they did make it. And my sister was born in Fiji wow. Um, wow. four years in. That's crazy. So, yeah. So where were you born? You were born, were you born on the boat? I was born in Cyprus, um, oh. which, yeah, the time was one of the safest places to have a baby in that part of the world. Uh, it was a little bit scary for my mum, I, I can think. imagine. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, I made it. And luckily I was a fairly good you know, water baby and boat baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine it would have been quite scary if you had a child who wanted to just get off the boat mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but yeah, I was, I think, fairly, fairly well behaved. And <laughs> <laughs> what an experience to be six years old and have, you know, having had that, you know, six years already of experience kind of on a boat getting your sea legs. I can't even, because I was a seasick child. Um, which is a bit mental now that I work, you know, at sea most of the time. Um, but yeah, what a what an incredible like growing up experience to have. I'm not surprised that you ended up in the field that you're in. <laughs> I mean, it puts, like go and sit in the naughty corner on a whole other level. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah, I was going to say, what did they do if you were naughty? There's sharks in the water, Yori. <laughs> Walk the plank. <laughs> yeah. Insane. I don't know, actually. My sister was kind of um, naughtier than me, and she was actually really seasick on the boat. So it was quite hard. Uh Yeah, it's interesting because it goes to show that it's not necessarily something that, you know, it's it's really, it's not genetic necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah. That makes me me feel better because I always used to feel like there was something wrong with me because I was seasick and I really wanted to be in the ocean. Do you? How do you, how do you cope with it? Lying horizontal, full tummy of food, headphones on. Oh, really? Yeah, and normally after a day or so, I find my sea legs. But uh-huh. yeah, first day, I'm normally throwing up. Yeah. My sister is like that too. So she just ended up sleeping a lot whilst we were uh-huh. sailing and travelling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you've just got to get through those first couple of days, eh? And then yeah. it, your body kind of realises it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a type of movement as well, isn't it? If it's quite a stable kind of, not stable, stable's great, but if it's like a predictable kind of pendulum movement, fine. Mm-hmm. It's when it's erratic, it's kind of yeah. like the English Channel, because I grew up in Guernsey in, in the Channel Islands, and the English Channel is just the water sloshes in from every which way, and it's quite choppy. So trips over to France, I would always get sick. Yeah. So how how did that then for you? I just sound so boring next to Ollie doing <laughs> I was born in, well, I was born in Manchester, actually, but I grew up in Guernsey, in the Channel uh-huh. Islands. So, mm-hmm. again, like, Guernsey's such a tiny island, mm-hmm. but you can stand on top of a hill and see 
ocean on all four sides which is, which is lovely yeah. so I spent you know every day in the summer on the beach rock pooling and just had a fascination of the ocean since being a little girl and then to be honest for me it was it was things it was films like Free Willy, Jaws, The Little Mermaid and then mm. of course the big BBC documentaries like Blue Planet that, mm. that you know just ignited this uh, this desire in me to to want to be out there and see it and film it for myself. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've had extensive careers as filmmakers, but you started out in science. So you both have degrees in science. So you've got a degree in uh, biological sciences from Oxford, Rachel and Yoli. You have a combined degree mm-hmm. in marine sci- marine biology and law. Is that right? That's correct. That's really interesting. How did? Why did you go for the combined degree just out of interest? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think because I grew up where I did. So when my parents finished their circumnavigation, we stopped uh, in Australia in a place called, uh, just north of Cairns called Port mm. Douglas. Mm-hmm. And in that area, there's a lot of people that spend their, a lot of their time diving. So I, I started diving and I started snorkeling and, and actually working in diving from quite a young age. Mm-hmm. And so I met a lot of people that had gone through their uni degrees and they'd become marine biologists mm-hmm. and then they'd essentially come out and started doing exactly what I was doing without actually even having a degree. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, I, I also knew that I really, you know, I was quite passionate about protecting the ocean. Yeah. And so I I thought that actually studying law might be a really good way mm-hmm. of being able to, to do that and to um, protect particularly the areas around where I grew up um, in Port Douglas. So yeah, so that was the reason. But in the end, um, even though it's, I think, an amazing way to make an impact, I think the practicality of actually working in law was not maybe something that I wanted to do as much. I'm sitting in front of a computer all the time. Yeah, um, yeah just didn't end up kind of working out. But um, I finished the degree and it has actually been extremely useful, surprisingly, for what I do now. Yeah, um, very, very good segue because that is my next question is <laughs> what, so what aspects of your degree and the science that your experience as a scientist have you taken forward into filmmaking? Yeah, so I guess um, science wise, I studied marine biology with the law, which was really an interesting combination to be doing at the same time. Um, but in terms of my science degree, I use it every day in my in my mm-hmm. work. And that, you know, I started out, both me and Rachel, we started out in this industry as researchers. I was just as a tape monkey, actually. Did you? Just, yeah, like back in the day when we were still filming on tape. And I was making decent coffees and started as a tape monkey. What's a, what, sorry, what is a tape monkey? Like a, like a runner, a runner. We called them tape monkeys back then because it was like, you're the one, you know, running the tape back yeah. to the storage and yeah. making teasing coffees. So yeah, that was my foot in the door. And then I, and then I worked my way up to being a researcher about, about six mm. months, six months later. I've done, I've dabbled, I've dabbled in researching for film production, but can you explain sort of what a researcher does and kind of how the science sort of comes into that? Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of us start out as researchers mm-hmm. um, in the TV industry and, you know, our main responsibility is kind of finding the new research, um, which can be then translated into these amazing new visual captivating stories. And to do that, you you have to be able to speak a scientific language because you need to speak to scientists Mm -hmm. on the phone. You need to be able to read scientific papers. Um, And yeah, if you don't have that background, I think it can be, it's not essential, but it can be a little bit trickier. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's been really useful. Main job as a researcher on a, a, you know, landmark TV film is is to find great stories that Mm -hmm. are filmable. And to do that, you need to know where, with who, exactly what, for how long, mm-hmm. and how reliable is it? You know, how many times is it happening? Which obviously feeds into the how long you should be there for. But I think that's scientific rigor. I think that that's why, you know, a, a lot of us have got degrees in biology and, and sciences before, because mm-hmm. just, just 
speaking to people, understanding the language of scientific papers, but also just having that. Well, no, tell me, how frequently does it happen? And is it a time of day thing? Or is it a time of the, the lunar cycle thing? Or, and is that place better or is that place better? And it's not, it's often grey, isn't it? But I think just having that scientific kind of rigour behind you is really helpful for, for researchers in our industry. I was just going to say, sometimes we work with scientists in the field as well. So they come out with us on our sheets and, you know, we'll be interacting with them and they'll be advising us and showing us where the best behaviour is. And I think it's just nice to be able to have something really in common with them and to be able to, yeah. Yeah, I think because we specialise in wildlife as well, it, it's not you're not telling people's story and you're not working with actors that are reading a script. You know, you're trying to tell the animal's story and you're yeah. trying to be as true to nature as you possibly can be. So who better to find that information from than the scientists and the naturalists that are, are observing and studying mm-hmm. these animals for often, you know, years at a time. And so we're so thankful to the science community and, you know, people such as yourself that are out there looking and observing because mm-hmm. we, you probably get loads of calls from us and nine <laughs> people in telly going, but, no, but tell me how frequently does it happen and how could we get there and how close could we get? And because yeah. we are sitting in an office in Bristol, Yolly twitching, you know, <laughs> before <laughs> we can get tea. back out there again. <laughs> but we, need, we need to know the how, how yeah. why, when, who and um, yeah. what. But they're so closely intertwined, science and filmmaking, because I actually did it, I did it the wrong way, not the wrong way around, but I did it the other way around. So I did do a degree. I went into researching for film production and then I went down this, like further down the scientific route. So now when filmmakers get in touch with me, I I kind of understand what it is that they want, because I think it's quite difficult sometimes as a scientist to understand how film and tv work Mm. right because you've got a very science is so rigorous and you take the emotion out of it and you're always taught right from the beginning that you can't you it's got to be very logical and this is just what happens whereas with film and tv you've got to have like a story to it and i think the two of them work really really nicely together because you know the areas where science lacks which is getting people engaged and interested and then on the other hand you know film and tv we can help you guys with like you say the animal behavior and things so it's really cool to have both of those backgrounds i think the hardest job actually for a researcher is at the end of production so you do pre Mm. you know pre-planning then you Mm -hmm. go into the filming but at the end when we're researching our um, scripts you know before it goes Mm. off to david or whoever's reading it because you've got to make sure that you know the lines we're writing are scientifically accurate whilst being digestible to a broad an audience as you possibly can you know because an eight-year-old child could be listening to it or you know a, a david's 96 year old friends and and you know people all over the world and you need to you can't read a scientific essay yeah over every animal story so I think that that's really hard like distilling the science and making it factually accurate while still entertaining in a story and I mean we did like the rigor we go through when Mm. we have to have um, two or three citations for every single fact that that we have Mm. in the script and that can be really hard because you've got annoying producers like me going, but I want to throw this. <laughs> no, it's like, but you can't. <laughs> Someone was talking on a panel the other day at Wild Screen about um, there was something like a, sci- a scientific term is downgrading for a forest, uh, you know, a forest being degraded. But there's no opposite to that. There's no upgrading in the film. The, the producer had to work for a year to get them to allow them to use the term upgrading because they were like people will understand that better because it's like the opposite version um yeah it's 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 fascinating it's fascinating to know how that and there's so much work that goes into a production that i don't Mm. think people realize Mm. um and it takes it takes years um but you both before we get onto that you both are now um in producing roles producers um and what is the difference between that and a researching role research there's a lot of like like you've just said there's it's a real collaborative effort mm-hmm. these these films and although we have fairly defined roles at the same time it's a team effort everyone kind of you know works works very closely mm-hmm. together um and you know the, the 
the final result of these films has taken, as you've said, you know, four and a half years for Frozen mm-hmm. Planet 2 and yeah. probably, you know, more than a thousand people all over the world. So, you know, that there is a lot of kind of um, like mingling between roles. But in, I guess in essence, researchers find the story, mm-hmm. producers decide, find stories and then producers decide on which stories mm-hmm. and kind of... Um, then working together with the researcher really distill down exactly what um, what sequence we are going to film, how we're going to film it, and yeah. who's going to be filming it mm-hmm. with us. And then an AP, an assistant producer, is often brought on on bigger productions, and um, they spend a lot of time in the field with mm. with with our cinematographers mm-hmm. actually directing and and filming. But it, it varies. On you often get producers that want to be in the field all the time. You get producers that have got young families that don't want to be in the field mm-hmm. at all. So yeah. researchers, APs and producers, we all end up directing individual sequences. But I guess mm-hmm. the producer has the vision and takes it all the way through from the beginning to the end, but also sits next to the editor for several months mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, create and craft the story at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because and we're at Wild Screen, I was going to ask for a little bit of advice um, but I'm trying to make them quite specific because I know whenever, whenever anyone asks, how do you get into the industry? There's so many different routes in. Um, but Yoli, do you have any advice for anyone who is maybe in a researching role at the moment and is wanting to make that transition into AP or as producer? Um, what can they, uh, I don't know if there's probably not like a route that they can follow, but do you have any advice for them in how they can start to make that transition onto the next level, if you like. <laughs> so just so I understand that, that was a, if you're already a researcher yeah. in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think like, I mean, being a researcher, it is, it's such a great opportunity because actually mm-hmm. like whilst you start to find the stories and you're probably going to be quite office-based throughout the production, yeah. you, you will get the opportunity to actually go in the field and often you'll be going with, another experienced assistant producer or with a producer so you'll be able to pick up on all of those bits of like directing Mm -hmm. skills and important skills that you'll need in the future Mm -hmm. um, from those people so I think like when you get those opportunities just making the most and asking as many questions Mm -hmm. about everything you know there's no silly questions it's a really good time to sort of be finding out as much information as you can Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah trying to get as many opportunities to go into the field as you can, trying to get as many opportunities to sort of at the end of the program, as Rachel was saying, when all of the material comes together in the edit, um, producers will often give researchers opportunities to just sit in the back of the edit and watch and see the different decisions that are being made, ask questions again. So I think, yeah, just really making the most of the opportunities as a researcher, to learn as much as you can. Yeah. And to not run before you can walk. I mean, your smart mm. has taken to like eight to ten years to make it from kind of researcher up to producer. And I yeah. I would hope that, you know, Ruby Greta PDs as a result of that. Because you, you don't, if you get thrown into it, if you get thrown in the deep end too quickly, then you may not survive. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, I think, I think the harder thing is breaking into the industry in the first place, into a researcher role. Often once you're in, if you work hard, then you're in. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's it's hard to kind of get get into the industry and it can feel like it's a bit of a tight-knit community. And it is a tight-knit community, as you've just seen at Wildscreen, but it's also yeah. it's also a wonderful community mm-hmm. and actually becoming so much more inclusive, yeah. so much more diverse. And I think with the explosion of content being made for all the streamers now, as well yeah. as the terrestrial channels, there's so much being made that there are more and more opportunities mm-hmm. for, for our amazing industry to, to grow and expand. So I think it's the three Ps. It's professionalism. So you need to have you know some kind of background, ideally a degree, because we've just explained why that's helpful. Yeah. But if not, just like a real understanding and experience of being out there. So that's professionalism. Passion. Because if you're sitting on a boat for a month waiting for something to happen, you need to be passionate about being out there, Yeah, you know, and also persistent because you can't, 
you know, like you can't just expect a job to land on your lap. Like you have mm. to work hard. Watch the watch the kind of shows that you want to work on. You know, try and really interrogate. Well, why is that good? Or why didn't that work? So watch shows. Email people. Contact people through social, through LinkedIn. Volunteer. You know, come and volunteer at things like Wild Screen. Yeah. You know, get out if you want to make films about wildlife. Get yourself in wildlife, and that could be studying a. A frog in a pond <laughs> in your garden, or it could be going for you know walk in the park to see if you can spot birds, or if you're lucky enough like you are to live by the sea, mm-hmm. it's you know get down and go rock pooling or get out on the boat. Yeah, and find a way. You know, if you want to make films about wildlife, you need to know wildlife. So yeah. the three P's: professionalism, passion, and persistence. Mm. <laughs> I really agree because it's like I think that that field craft that you learn from spending a lot of time you know, in the environment, just observing animals, mm. it ends up being so useful when you go out on shoots because yeah. it's interesting, like you get sent out there and sometimes you'll have a scientist with you who can help you to sort of point out the behavior and what when things are happening, but sometimes you'll just be sent out to a place and it's really up to you to spot those whales or mm-hmm. to know what behavior is going to happen when. Yeah. And so it's that kind of field craft that you learn mm-hmm. early in your science degree or just by being out in nature, mm-hmm. which I think will be the difference sometimes between whether you get the sequence or not. One aspect of your careers as well that I really, really wanted to ask you about is diving. Because as a diver myself, sometimes I watch what you guys, what you're doing on the behind the scenes. And I'm like, this looks so amazingly cool. Um, But also pretty, sometimes pretty gnarly, pretty tough as well. Mm -hmm. You're diving under ice in Blue Planet. You're diving with like lots of different currents and all sorts. And you're having to film at the same time or being a safety diver. Just lots and lots of stuff going on. Um, but my first question, this is kind of very, this is similar to the memorable experience one, and I know you're both going to hate it, but is there anything that you've captured underwater, like throughout your careers that particularly stands out? So Rachel, I'll come to you first. Sorry. (laughs) So hard. I mean, I think particularly because of the subject of this podcast, it, it has to be working. I worked on a series called Shark. For the BBC, yeah, a good mm-hmm. few, a few, 2015, I think it was released. And when we first went into production on that, um, I was scared of sharks. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I just had nothing but respect and admiration and fascination for them as, mm-hmm. as a group of animals. And and so I think, yeah, we were filming great, great whites in Guadeloupe out of, you know, out of a cage. Yeah. And but instead of, you know, telling a story about predation and teeth and biting and hunting, mm-hmm. we were telling a story about communication and how, Brilliant. you know, the subtleties of their movements and, and their interactions with one another mm-hmm. is you know, a form of, of, of pecking order and communication within that shark community. And I think that that series as a whole was just it was an amazing experience because, like I said, I did go from being pretty terrified to diving in shipwrecks, you know, coming face to face with ragged tooth sharks, diving with mm-hmm. great whites, you know, diving in and amongst hundreds of reef sharks and remote French Polynesian atolls and mm-hmm. and then also filming Wobbegongs and walking sharks. I love Wobbegongs. Pajama sharks and all the gorgeous little, awesome baby lemon sharks. You know, filming all the shark stories and species that never get the press and they were the coolest. So sorry, that was very long and not really just just script, but no, no sharks no. in general. I think I'm most proud of. Yeah, we don't. You never have to apologise on this podcast for going off on a shark tangent. We're always happy to talk about <laughs> sharks, um, and I love wobbegongs. They're some of my favourite groups of sharks ever. They're so cool. I love the way that Yoli says Wobbegong. Wobbegong. It's so much better than the Australian accent. It is. It is. I went went off on a whole uh, thing the other day because one of the things I do for Save Our Seas is write shark fact files. So we're trying to get through every single species of shark and write a fact file about them. 
And I went down a whole rabbit hole about just how many different species of wabagong there are and how <laughs> great their names are. Um, so how there's, many species of wabagong there are? I don't know how many there are in total, but I do know there are ones called the floral banded wabagong, which sounds like something out of the 70s. Wow. Um, and there's the tasseled wabagong as mm-hmm. well, which has his little awesome. chin attachments or whatever so they're called. Awesome. So cool. We love sharks. Anyway, I'll, I will not go down that route as we'll be here all day. Um, Yoli, how about you? Is there anything that you've captured underwater that stands out to you? Yeah, it's really tricky. Um, I think probably because I grew up in tropical North Queensland mm-hmm. and I've sort of been, yeah, very, very used to warm tropical diving. Coming onto Frozen Planet 2 was always going to be quite a, you know, a big challenge. And um, I knew as when I joined the production that I would absolutely love to go somewhere in Antarctica and film under sea ice. And that was um, an opportunity which ended up uh, coming to fruition with the Weddell seal sequence Yes. Uh, for the Antarctic episode. And yeah, it was just so amazing mm-hmm. to be able to go under the ice uh, you know, it's a meter thick ceiling of ice with all sorts of amazing, you know, features like caves and caverns and brinicles. And it's just so, so beautiful. Um, and yeah, it's the coldest water on earth. It's extremely cold. It's minus two degrees Celsius. Um, so I think for me, like just having achieved that, I don't know whether I'll ever do that again. I don't know if I necessarily really want to do that again, but it will, it's very memorable. And yeah, I'll yeah. definitely never forget that. And yeah. I feel kind of proud that I managed to do that. You should, yeah. you should, it's insane. It's one of the best sequences of the whole series. It's so... When that male comes in and it's like, <laughs> The sound, what was, what did, how did it feel being in the water? Sorry, I'm not No, no, that's fine. You go for it. You go for it, yeah. How did it feel being in the water? Like, it was really loud. And what did it feel like being under the water with these animals doing such incredible, showing incredible behavior? Yeah, it's, it was amazing. They're so, so loud. And it actually creates, like, it reverberates through your whole body when they make that noise. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have a sound as loud as a jet engine, like it's really amazing, really powerful. Um, And yeah, we were able to capture a lot of the natural sounds. We hooked up a little hydrophone to my cameraman's uh, camera. And so we were able to film the sounds that the seals were making in real time, which was really, really cool. I mean, it's it's such... It's such an incredible sequence. And also, you know, the sequence with the harp seals as well in, in Frozen Ocean, like both of them are so beautiful to watch because that scenery when it's like under the ice and you've got the kind of blue color but you've also got the seals like interacting got the babies as well and the noises the noises that the Weddell seals make are it's crazy as a viewer and I can't imagine what that would have been like to actually experience there underwater at the same time should say that the the common factor with those two sequences was the (laughs) fabulous Cinematographer Hugh Miller filmed mm-hmm. both of those in both both poles, and he is such an incredible cameraman. He really is. He just he, he's a machine in terms of I don't know how he doesn't just freeze because I would turn into an absolute ice cube if I spent the amount of time that he. I mean, hours, hours under the ice, and in very different landscapes because mm. you know Yoli's shoot was under this ice ceiling where you had mm. ice holes that you were going up and down to to mm. get back to air. The challenge for us when we were filming the harp seals of Greenland was that that it was like a Tetris ice kind of pack ice environment over Hugh's head. Yeah, and so we couldn't tether him because if we'd have tethered him to the boat for safety, then that tether could have got caught in the pack ice moving around mm-hmm. with the tides and as you see later in that sequence with the storms. And so, yeah, he just had to be super vigilant with Justin. Justin was down there with him, was it Justin yeah. Hoffman? Mm-hmm. And Justin, on both shoots, both shoots, both shoots again, what a yeah. super team yeah. those, those guys are. And uh, Justin, you know, as well as capturing some fabulous behind the scenes material, also just kept, kept them both safe down there. Cause I, I was gonna say, cause you see it in the behind the scenes as well, right? Where the, mm-hmm. where the ice is moved and you can't get the vessel three yeah, that's a bit hairy. which looks utterly terrifying because uh, uh, you could it, if the ice had closed in around us we could have jumped off 
and right. off the boat and then kind of tried to jump from ice piece of ice to piece of ice to piece of ice back up to the big boat mm-hmm. but it would have been the end of our shoot because the the that ice weighs tons and yeah. it would have crushed the boat and sunk, you know, half a million pound of camera mm-hmm. gear that, that was on the boat. So it was a real, mm-hmm. real threat. And there was no option of getting another one kind of flown out to replace it because we were, you know, a six day sail from, from mm-hmm. the nearest town. So, yeah. yeah, sometimes it is a little bit, it's not a walk in the park, <laughs> what we do. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> shoot what, definitely wasn't what, a new race. What a privilege to look out my port hole and see how it feels. It's like crazy. So amazing. They are the cutest things I've ever seen, especially the little babies. <laughs> They're so adorable. But obviously, like, Golly, you said earlier that you, like, transferred from, like, tropical diving into that sort of environment where you're diving under ice. It's, like, the coldest water in the world. So how, how, do, you, how do you prepare for that as a diver? I mean, even, like, can you prepare for that? Yeah, I mean, in one good thing, I suppose, for me was that I had actually, prior to Frozen Planet, I had done a little bit of diving in Antarctica already. I'd yeah. worked a little bit as a dive master. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew sort of what um, kind of clothing and equipment you would need for your typical Antarctic diving. Mm-hmm. But I think what was maybe different about Frozen Planet too, the experience that we had was that we were diving, you know, under this ice ceiling yeah. and in even colder conditions. So yeah, it was a lot of conversations with um, between the team, our team, and also the camera team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hugh Miller had a huge amount of experience diving in this particular spot. So it was taking a lot of advice from him, everything down to how many layers you would wear in your <laughs> undergarments to like how thick your hood needed to be. So that was, um, yeah, a lot. That's, that just took a lot of planning and time. Yeah. Um, but that, I guess the thing we wanted to do differently with that sequence was that we wanted to take a different uh, type of diving kit. So they're called closed circuit rebreathers, yeah. um, which, yeah, recycle your oxygen and... Um, you have the carbon dioxide scrubbed out so that essentially you can stay under the water for a long period of time and it doesn't produce any bubbles. Um, But they've never been used in that particular location in Antarctica in those really, really cold conditions before. Um, So we had to apply for the first ever permissions to use them. Right. Yeah, with the Antarctic, um, the US Antarctic program. And luckily, they'd actually tested some rebreathers. They tested seven rebreathers the year before. And then I think with the experience that we had, they gave us the permissions to go down. But yeah, it took that actually meant like diving the rebreathers in those cold conditions meant that we really had to like practice in the UK. Um, I had to get like 30 hours of dives in prior Mm -hmm. to the shoot and yeah, the main thing, I don't know if you would agree, Rach, but when you're diving in the cold, you have to wear really thick gloves. So it means that oh. your dexterity, so your ability to actually operate your technical diving kit is just so much trickier. So I had to just sit and practice yeah. in a pool and in a quarry, just doing the most <laughs> basic things with my really thick gloves on. And it's just so basic, but yeah, I it took forever. Yeah. didn't want to do it. <laughs> I normally, you can't stop me getting in the water. And in Blue Planet 2, like we filmed in, in colder waters, like we filmed this cob and eye fish for, yeah. for the opening episode that looked a bit like Donald Trump with his <laughs> yellow yeah, like green hands and his big blobber and chin, like scaring all the women. Um, probably didn't say that, but <laughs> he did. Nah, nah. But, but we filmed that and that was pretty cold. That was like four or five degrees and that was cold enough for me. Oof. And we were doing long dives with three breathers, but the under ice stuff, I am not as strong as Yoli. Like I, I am not as I'm not as big a person as she is. I can't do it. Like I just can't. I've I've done under ice diving, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But yeah, when it comes to that extreme levels of diving, I will leave it to you know the Yollies and the Hughes of the world, and I will stay topside and and, and help help 
just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Frozen Planet 2 and climate change storytelling because one of the things that we struggle as as scientists is how to tell these kind of very how to communicate this kind of big almost scary science to the public um but obviously as you said earlier frozen planet 2 has been in the works for over four years which a lot of people i don't think realize just how long these big blue chip series are sort of in the making for um, and so I was interested to know, um, Rachel, let me maybe come to you first, what, what this process looks like. So how do you go from, how do you decide what stories that you want to tell in a series? We wanted to read the changes from the original Frozen Planet series. Mm-hmm. And whereas that looked at the amazing animals that lived in both the poles, the Arctic and the Antarctic, Frozen Planet 2 looked at the cryosphere in general. So yeah. we wanted to talk about areas that were frozen because of altitude, you know, not because of latitude. So we had a sequence of a chameleon on top of Mount Kenya because it's covered in snow. So we wanted to kind of tell the story all about cold places in our on our planet. But we were also keenly aware from the very beginning just how fast these places were changing. And yeah. I mean, the Arctic's warming four times faster than anywhere else on the planet now. And so we were very aware of that and we wanted to document it. Um, and so we worked with with satellite companies and we actually commanded satellites to be able to take daily pictures over the scale of the three years to be able to feature sea ice retreating from an area or a glacier retreating from a mountain. Um, we also set up long-term um, time-lapse cameras to be able to, again, like on our watch over these three, four years, to be able to feature, you know, how this ice was changing, mm-hmm. um, as well as, of course, using MODIS data from NASA to show the, the picture of sea ice in, over the last 40 odd years. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're, we're documentary filmmakers, and so we wanted to document how that ice was retreating um, and tell the story of the frozen world in general, not just the poles. But in terms of the story selection, I think, you know, we knew very early on that the climate change was very much going to be at its core. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to find stories that showed that rather yeah. than us saying it so that people yeah. could actually viscerally experience and see how polar bears were having to swim for 10 days straight over 400 miles to reach land, how harp seals, you know, that are normally birthed on these huge pieces of pack ice and now you know managing to just cling on and sometimes not on these tiny pieces of ice and I can only really talk you know specifically about about my film the frozen ocean film but for that I mean it's a story about sea ice and how sea ice is so important to every animal and people that that live in the arctic circle so you know, it might be important to polar bears because they hunt from it, important to harp seals because they give birth on it, important to skeleton shrimp because they <laughs> use it as, you know, as a food bank once the ice starts melting and that food is released, important to bowhead whales because yeah. they use it as protection against, you know, the predation threat of, of killer whales. And so every single sequence kind of spoke to sea ice and that story particularly followed a, a, a very predictable narrative from yeah. winter where it's ice covered to summer where current predictions are that the arctic could become ice free as early as 2035 which is terrifying so terrifying yeah so i yeah, yeah that that was a long answer but um we we oh, wanted yeah. to tell a contem- we wanted to make a contemporary portrait of of what's happening in our frozen worlds mm-hmm. today Yes, and and the viewer, you really get a sense that there's that there's that urgency there. Like, so in some other places in the world, obviously we're seeing changes, but in the Arctic and the Antarctic, you're seeing changes quicker and more rapid. Um, and you really feel, as a viewer watching that, you're getting the sense that it is, it's happening now. It's affecting species now. It's a really real threat. I mean, most of the time when we're trying to decide as researchers, you know, which story you go for, mm-hmm. you're normally looking at the, cha- at the challenges that animals face in their life history. So finding a mate, growing up, migrating. And now one of those challenges for many of these animals is coping with the changing environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And Yoli, you assisted on Frozen Ocean, but also on Frozen South as well. Yeah. Both episodes are absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm going to put uh, links in the show notes to everyone who wants to go and watch the series. I would highly recommend that you do watch the whole thing. But those episodes are just, they're so beautifully shot. And the stories that you tell in them as well are... I cried, I laughed, <laughs> you know, all of these, all a big full range of emotions. But what are some of the climate stories that you tell in Frozen South? Because that is obviously about Antarctica. Yeah, so I think coming off um, Blue Planet to a lot of the team actually finished that series and then came on to Frozen Planet. <laughs> and I think we sort of realized that, you know, we need to, we want to tell these really emotionally engaging, amazing, captivating stories in order to get the audience to just fall in love with all of these creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also, you know, we really wanted to tell the story of how these landscapes are changing dramatically. And in the Antarctic, um, one of the things that's really impacting that area is sort of changing weather conditions, which Mm -hmm. are causing increased rain to fall on the peninsula. And so one of the strongest stories, I think, in the Antarctic film is the one about the chinstrap penguins which are being really impacted by increasing rains these little chicks they just can't you know when it's raining rather than snowing they can't um yeah they can't stay dry um and we also have a story about wandering albatross which um these guys uh females feed in a completely different area to the males Mm -hmm. and we think that potentially increasing winds, which is caused by driving by, by climate change, is making the females fly to a slightly different area where they're really being impacted by online fishing. And um, yeah, this means that the females get taken way more than the males, and males now outnumber females three to one yeah. on one particular sub-Antarctic island called the Antipodes. And it's just like really sad. It's, it's a really, you know, sad story about these males that um, yeah. basically can't kind of find females and are pairing up for companionship, um, which is like, a, yeah, it's a beautiful, I think it really all hit us as well. Like whilst we were filming in the middle of this pandemic and COVID, you know, they just, they just wanted to have company and yeah. be able to kind yeah. of just share their time with, um, and even though they couldn't find a female, they're mm-hmm. happy to sort of find like, another male to mm-hmm. share that time with so yeah but those are just some of the stories I mean there's so many sadly so many big change stories and it was quite in a way a challenge for my producer Orla Doherty to sort of work out which ones yeah. are going to fit our narrative and which ones would be the most impactful mm-hmm. um, and yeah, yeah make the make the biggest impact for the audience and speaking about the narratives as well, um, because the chin straps is a really good example because you start off with a little bit of humour, right? Because the chin straps trying to pull a rock up a hill and there's another one that's looking at it kind of like, what are you doing? <laughs> and you sort of laugh at that. And then it goes into that story. And because you've, because you've been engaged and you've kind of got to know them a little bit and you're like, oh, you know, they're really, they're really sweet and funny. And then it's, it's heart-wrenching when you get to the part about, you know, these little chicks that are freezing and they're just shaking there. Um, but, you know, this is something that's, you know, throughout Frozen Planet is that kind of mixture of light and dark. You know, you've got humour and love and sweetness, but then right next to these kind of very, you know, what's happening to these animals because of climate change and, and other things. And I, I just wondered, is it how how do you strike that balance between... Because obviously you don't want the audience to feel doom and gloom all the time, but you also don't want to stray away from the issues. It's potentially quite a difficult question. But no, I, mean, I think first and foremost, we wanted this series to be a celebration mm-hmm. of life in, in the cold places on our planet. and Because yeah. they are incredible, incredible habitats with extraordinary animals. That, that you know really do go to extreme lengths to survive in these places. So we wanted to celebrate that. We wanted to tell these incredible, funny stories of 
farting or us roly pollying <laughs> down or, yeah. or, you know, pumas hunting at night or it, like the, the whole, so, or the, I mean, the wolf bison opener in, mm. in the Frozen North episode, that was extraordinary. And we wanted to tell these incredible wildlife spectacles yeah. because it, you know, it, it would be criminal not to. But at the same time, you know, as, as, as you touched on, you, you simply can't responsibly make a series about frozen places without also talking about the challenges that are being faced by climate change. Yeah. And I think, you know, the style of storytelling in recent years has gone because of the, you know, the evolution of cameras and sensors. We, we can get that much closer with longer lenses and film for that much longer mm-hmm. into, you know, darker, darker points in the day and the night. And, and it just means that we can get on the eye level of these animals and just kind of try and get get into, you know, who are they? You know, who are these animals and what are they going through? And yeah. I think because of that that way of storytelling that, that we're following, it then makes it all the harder when you see that one of those challenges is linked to, you know, our impact in the natural world. Yeah, absolutely. And something else that we see a lot in Frozen Planet, Blue Planet as well, these blue chip series, is the fact that you're filming behaviours sometimes that have never been seen before, sometimes not even scientifically recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you know when, you, when you're when you setting out to film, I mean, obviously you've got things, you've got stories that you want to tell already, but do you know sometimes that these things are going to happen or is it like a complete surprise when you're there i mean in order to kind of commit the the time and the teams and the money and the boats and you you do have to before you go out in the field and do a shoot you usually have an idea of sort of the story or the sequence that you want to tell that's for sure because that just means that you will have more success i think of coming back with a story rather than just a big random collection of um shots which don't necessarily come together yeah. Um, yeah, into into a story, but of course, like there are definitely. I mean, animals don't follow scripts, so we we write a plan for what we hope might happen, and then you get out there, and a lot of the time, yeah, you see behaviour that you just didn't expect, or the animal doesn't show up, or yeah, like for some reason, a really sad, maybe because of climate change as well, like the behaviour is just not happening as you expected that it would happen, so. Yeah, I think that then comes down to like the team on location to then be able to switch the plan, make the most of whatever amazing new behavior or different animal turns up to make sure that you come back with a story. Yeah, all I would say though is with these big landmarks, we always have at least one that's (laughs) one story that's pie in the sky. You know, so you have some yeah. what we call bankers where you, you, you know the research is pretty good and you're probably going to come back with, with what you're hoping for. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, like Yoli says, you don't want to waste money. Mm-hmm. But there's always one or two, <laughs> depending on how risky the producer is, which is like, we might come back with nothing. But if we come back with something, <laughs> it's going to be epic. Uh-huh. And Miles Barton, who we both worked with on um, Blue Planet 2, who sadly has passed away. Mm. It's such a loss to our industry. But he was one. He was so experienced, but he was one to go for those pie and size stories. Yeah. And he sent, for instance, on Blue Planet 2, he sent the team out to film the um, giant trevally, the fish that caught birds mid-flight. There wasn't a single frame, a single shot of that that <gasps> happened before. And same, it was Miles that sent me to the Galapagos to film sea lions hunting mm-hmm. yellowfin tuna. Mm-hmm. And we'd heard from fishermen that it was happening but had no idea. So we just sent out a small team at first. And when it was happening in front of us, <laughs> myself and Richard Willicum and Dan Beach and the, the camera cameraman, we were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> and it's so exhilarating because, so you know, you, you hope you're going to see something like yeah. that, but it's, it's extraordinary. But you can't have too many of those in, in each film because no. if not, you, you could just end up with nothing. <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. You've, you've got to have some things, I guess, that you know absolutely you can get. And then and then you do have a bit of leeway to sort of be like, okay, we'll see if we can yeah. get this. Sprinkle the magic. But it's so incredible. And then kind of linked onto that is we talked how, you know, um, science can inform filmmaking, but I also wanted to ask, you know, how filmmaking can help science and 
we're often in a very privileged position as filmmakers because we get to go out and observe very closely a certain animal or group of animals for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. So we may notice some nuanced behavior that the scientists in the field, you know, have, haven't had the time, because they're collecting data, they haven't had the time to actually watch that animal and see how it behaves. So we're always very keen to work with scientists because we get so many of our stories and you know they they are the lifeblood of, of, of what you know what we what we are able to create so we're very keen to kind of give our footage back to the science community mm-hmm. and often you know scientific papers are created you know in part due to to you know the the amazing cinematography and the, the moments that we capture on film yeah, I mean, I just, I agree. Like, we're in this really amazing privileged position. And, you know, like one story that, as Rachel was saying, you know, we go out sometimes and we don't actually have pictures of, of the behavior. And that, and Weddell Seals was one of those. Mm. I mean, we, we really, because it was such a challenging place to work under the ice in such cold conditions, there weren't that many researchers who had actually studied the Weddell Seal underwater. So we knew about the fact that there were these territorial fights happening based on the fact that we just saw the males on the ice with injuries. So we'd never actually seen it underwater. There was injuries on land. So it was kind of assumed that that would be caused by territorial fights between males. But when we spent the time to actually watch what was happening underwater, we found, and Hugh Miller and Justin Hoffman, found that actually what was happening was it was males coming in and attacking or trying to mate with females early and then the females launching these full-blown attacks on the males. <laughs> I mean, they were having absolutely none of it yeah. in order to protect their pup yeah. who wasn't yet weaned. So that's just an example of like, you know, we talked to the scientists after about that and whether they had ever seen it before and they'd never seen it. And so I think actually um, this whole idea of male Weddell seals getting injured by other males in order to protect breathing holes um, and territories might not actually be the case. I think a lot of the injuries are caused by females. And that's something that we were able to observe, which was really amazing. Uh Um, And yeah, I mean, there's lots of examples. Like we did a shoot filming bumblebees for the tundra episode and we were really really lucky to stumble on the first uh, lapland bumblebee nest we had a big group of scientists out there with us and through doing that and spending time trying to film the lapland bumblebees they were then able to investigate the nest find out lots of information about um, what it looks like and what the bees actually what their nesting behavior is like and yeah, they published a paper earlier this year on the yeah behavior of the Lapland bumblebee. So, but Rachel, I mean, you had um, experience like that on Blue Planet too with the mobula rays, didn't you? That was a paper that was published on yeah. or a note that was published. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is an audio medium, I'm just going to say, Rachel, Rachel, for a second, she looked very, very confused there, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I did that." <laughs> I think because we we are trying we're trying to capture new behaviour. You know, the, the 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 audience has an appetite for being transported to worlds that they've never seen before and seeing something that they may have never they didn't know existed. Yeah, yeah. Which makes it really hard for us <laughs> because we're constantly having to try and find you know the next new thing. But often when you are in in you know new territory. And also the cameras, uh, you know, I have to say again, like it's, it's you know, it's our camera, cameramen and women that, that spent a lot of time capturing this. But yeah. also if you can slow something down, you know, a hundred times, then you might see something in it. I don't want to give anything away from stuff we've just been filming, but, but often with cameras, if you can see yeah. in the dark or if you can slow something down a thousand times, yeah. then, then you might, you might find something new. That's it. Yeah. And I mean, it's becoming in the scientific community as well. It's becoming a lot more normal to use things like drone footage and analyze video footage and things to learn about new behaviors. I mean, especially with sharks, we've just had the white shark in Orca 
predation in South Africa that's just been proven for the first time because someone just happened to have a drone in the air. And that's that's the only time that we've captured it. It's it's pretty it's pretty crazy. So I think there's definitely a lot of avenues for filmmaking and science to work hand in hand in the future, especially as like we talked about earlier, we're seeing these changes the changes happening to our natural world are occurring so rapidly and we need to make the most of any opportunity that we have to showcase that. You've both been absolutely fantastic. Um, but we do have one final question that we ask every guest on this podcast. Um, it's a very serious one. Um, and that is, if you could be any species of shark or ape or skate in the world, what would you be and why? Yoli, I'll put you on the spot first. <laughs> oh, um, a thresher shark. Oh, yes. Definitely a thresher shark. <laughs> I just think they're so cool. I've never seen one and I just, oh, oh man, I, I would so love to see one. I'm hoping maybe in the next four years or so I'll finally be able to see one. But yes. yeah, I mean, they just, there was a video that came out like, gosh maybe it must be like five years or six years ago now but just about how they hunt like with their tails like and I just I just think it's the most crazy like you just I would never have thought looking at that animal that that is how that they stun and capture their prey and it's it's just amazing it's it's phenomenal isn't it yeah yeah Jada Elcock who we've had on the podcast before she's a shark scientist and she Anytime someone mentions Brescia, I just hear her in my head being like, the shark that hunts with its butt. Because <laughs> um, she says it all the time. But yeah, excellent, excellent choice. Rachel, how about you? Choice. It's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you don't just think about the habitat that that shark lives in. I instantly start thinking about the threats that that shark might be under as well. So partly for that reason, I don't think I would want to be one of the big pelagic sharks because you'd get caught on a line and that must be horrible so i would be a wobbingong because i get to live on a coral reef in warm places thawing out after a frozen planet and have a fabulous name and a frilly head (laughs) absolutely brilliant i would also like to be a wobbingong i think that'd be very cool or a thresher either or um, anyway, I'm going to let you both go because I know you've got to get back to your busy lives and your editing and all, all kinds of very exciting things. But thank you both so, so much for fitting us in. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Isla. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our wonderful artwork is by Nicola Pula. And the brilliant jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Rachel and Yolly for taking time out of your busy schedules to talk to us on the podcast. It was so utterly fascinating to hear about your adventures and your experiences and... I am now incredibly jealous and want to change my career path, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. So thank you so much for that. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to rate, review and subscribe. That really does help other people to find us. And if you want a question answered on the podcast or you want us to cover a certain topic or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch on isla at saveourseas.com. You can email or you can find us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.